Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This episode of the Artelligence Podcast is a conversation between Brian Droicourt, an editor at Art in America, and Cristobal Martinez, a member of the collective Post Commodity. They are at the San Francisco Art Institute, where Martinez is a faculty member, and the discussion revolves around post-commodities work, The Point of Final Collapse, the sound piece that takes the troubled Millennium Tower in San Francisco as its subject matter. Let's turn it over to Brian to conduct the interview. I just wanted to start by asking about the origins of this work. How did you come to the Millennium Tower as um, as a subject for, for your work. So um, before I get started, I just want to share with everyone that my collaborator, Cade Twist, he was meant to be here with us today. Unfortunately, he's come down with a really gnarly bug, a really bad flu. And so he wasn't able to get on the plane this morning. Um, but I want to share with you that every, everything that uh, we talk about today comes from a our deep collaboration on this project for, for uh, it's been over two years. And so I'm gonna do the best that I can to represent our conversation and collaboration in developing this work. So um, we, we were originally, um, this was in uh, 2016, um, then uh, curator uh, Hesse McGraw and um, his uh, partner, uh, um, co-curator, um, Katie Hood Morgan, had approached Post Commodity and asked if um, we were interested in um, uh, doing a, a residency and uh, commission for the San Francisco Art Institute. Uh, this was before I had come to work here at the Institute. And um, the idea was, um, some of the thinking at the time was um, how, Hesse's idea was how can SFAI uh, support post-commodity by providing a launch pad that would enable us to sort of level up in, in the art world. He, he had been following our work and, and was really intrigued by by the work we've been doing. We, we, we were founded in 2007. And so one of the things that Post Commodity does is uh, we're an indigenous collective. Um, the collective was founded in 2007. It's had several members throughout its life, throughout the course of its life. Um, and we think a lot about, um, you know, how are we supposed to behave as, as artists when, when, we're, when we're invited to places to, to work on commissions. And one of our uh, deepest concerns has to do with um, comporting ourselves as guests. Uh, one of the things, that has a lot to do with uh, narratives of colonization and thinking about, thinking about the peoples by which um, the, the tribes were from and the people were from um, having a deal with uh, narratives, you know, of, of people coming from other places and then changing our, our home, rearranging our furniture, essentially. And so we don't want to rearrange anyone's furniture. 
whenever we, uh, we go to places and we do commissions. And so one way that we, we try not to do that is we try to position our work as an ear. And we go to a place and we try to educate ourselves about a, a place, but we don't educate ourselves about a place by reading about it. We, we do it by, by meeting people and being asked to, by uh, people who host us to introduce us to, to citizens, to, to politicians, to, to other artists. And we try to learn about places through the stories that people, citizens in, in various places share with us. And so um, we, um, when we came to San Francisco, uh, we, we have, I mean, one of the biggest refrains in the city has been in the city, and it's an ongoing refrain, and it, and it just doesn't stop, and it's just, it's the word gentrification, it just keeps coming up, that's, that's the refrain, that's what we listen to. We've listened to a lot of narratives tied to gentrification, and we've had to think, well, you know, how do we engage it in a way that is potentially generative? And how do we avoid reducing its complexity down to sound bites that have already been generated, both by the public, by the press, by, by politicians? And so um, we, we sort of learned of, while we were here, of this sort of ultimate metaphor that really encapsulates the time we're living in right now. This high-rise called the Millennium Tower that is sinking and tilting in downtown San Francisco that also represents some of the most expensive real estate in the world. And so um, it was obvious that um, we were going to engage it at that point. But you, you became a citizen of San Francisco during the process, right? Did that? Um, I did. I did. Did that, did that change oh, yeah. your approach to it? And, oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So, so Kate, uh, my collaborator, was uh, uh, lived in San Francisco during the 90s. So he was familiar with the city. And he lived here, I think, for, for over five years. And then um, I came to um, the San Francisco Art Institute at the, at the start of the um, of the project and um, when I got here um, on, um, on my salary as, as a as a professor which you know was negotiated is you know I negotiated as hard as I could I was being headhunted at the time by institutions and felt comfortable at one point I wanted to come here I wanted to teach here I, I, I'm still, you know, um, below or poverty, what's considered pov the poverty line in the city. So I had to take up residence, uh, the most affordable real estate that I could find. Uh, my partner and I, uh, my wife, Meredith and I, was, um, was in the Tenderloin. And um, we, we couldn't afford to have our car here. So we, you know, we made a lot of changes in our lives to, to be a part of this, this idea called the San Francisco Art Institute. And um, that had a profound impact 
on the piece. The things that have a profound impact are the screams that we hear at night. The human shit that we see on the sidewalk when we're walking down the street. When I see people the age of my mother sleeping on the sidewalk during a rainstorm, these things are very, very um, uh, painful to witness, both as a citizen and a newcomer and as an indigenous person, especially as an indigenous person. And I uh, can't help but tell I can't help but notice that a lot of it is, um, it's, it's a class problem, it's a race problem. And that's also been part of the refrain and part of what we've heard, but I've also witnessed this. And so um, it, 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 gets to, it gets you to a point where you, you start to think, well, you know, how do you, how do, you do this generatively? How do, you, how do you position a metaphor without letting the, the pain get the best of you so that we can have a conversation. And that's been one of the greatest challenges associated to this piece for me. So the piece is kind of conceived as healing. Is that right? Uh, um, it, it, it draws on ASMR, uh -huh. the um, auto meridian Sensory, sensory response, I don't know. So, yeah, that, right? autonomous uh, sensory meridian, meridian response. Yeah, which is um, certain kinds of crunching or rustling sounds that induce a tingling sensation and they um, help some people um, relieve their anxiety. Um, how, how did you kind of, uh, was this something like you thought of as the opposite of the screams you were hearing, or how, how did you kind of um, approach this idea of healing through sound? Yeah, okay, so, so a lot of the, the work that post-commodity has been up to um, since 2007 uh, has been um, uh, influenced a lot by uh, Steve Goodman's uh, Sonic Warfare. Um, where uh, this theorist theorizes uh, sound. He, he implicates art as part of the sort of art military complex and looks at the various ways in which sound has been weaponized. And, um, and we've, you know, we've thought a lot about that in the context of um, the, the, the communities we were raised in, the, the world at large, the, economic systems, um, uh, industrial systems, uh, military uh, systems. And we, we saw ASMR as an opportunity to build an economic model or model the economy through the work, but also as an opportunity to, to critique uh, systems of capital. And so there's the, the piece is it's kind of cannibalizing itself because it is a ASMR, just for those of you who don't know, is it comes from the discourse of homeopathy and self-help and all these sort of therapeutic, this therapeutic industry that, 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 that rings to the tune of tens of millions of dollars annually. 
And so ASMR is, there are these uh, sounds, they could be whispers like this. And they could be, it's okay, you're okay. You're gonna get through this. It's just a, it's just a moment in time, it's gonna what that's doing. Think about what that is doing. Perhaps one of the things it's doing is that, it, that it's anesthetizing you so that you don't have to feel the actual stress and pain you're going through in life because heaven forbid that could actually lead to some sort of criticality about the world. And so we, we sort of saw a, a humor and a hubris of the market in that we had a, 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 a tower, some of the most expensive real estate in the world that is sinking and tilting. And at the same time, you know, it's depreciating value, but it's sort of still holding its value. And then in some cases with some of the penthouse suites seems to be appreciating in value. And so, so the, 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 our economy is now defying the capacity of the land itself to sustain it. And so there's a kind of comedy, a kind of dark comedy, a kind of sadness, a kind of beauty, a kind of awesomeness, but also uh, uh, something that's really uh, telling about the state of humanity right now and certainly the state of, 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 our, of our country. And so um, we saw that as the Millennium Tower creates the anxiety, homeopathy creates the relief. And so you have this economic feedback loop that sort of seems to sustain us increasingly here in the Bay Area as the market becomes more and more frenetic and hyperinflated over time. Kat mentioned that um, we published a review of the piece in Art in America this week, and it's by Matt Sussman, who's a, a Bay Area critic, and he raises the point that ASMR is usually a very individualized experience, that when you're watching the ASMR videos, you have headphones so you can hear these sounds um, very distinctly, and that the people who make these videos usually look directly into the camera. They address the viewer, giving these comforting messages that you were just demonstrating. Yeah. Um, so, and he kind of raises the question of what it means to take that very um, intimate experience and broadcast it, because this work that plays from the tower, it can be heard right. um, all the way down the hill, like down to the financial district in North Beach. Um, so what does it mean to create a sort of collective ASMR experience? Well, we, we wanted to demonstrate the weaponization of self-help within the context of the market econ economy, and the, one of the best ways we could do that was to 
run it through two um, sonic weapons called long-range acoustic devices, which are mounted to the top of the tower. Those, those sonic weapons have been used against American publics and their, um, they've been used to silence public assembly on the street. They were originally used in the, in the late 90s at the G20 summit in, um, in um, uh, uh, Seattle in which people were um, assaulted with these cannons and it's a, it's a way to get crowds to break and disperse. These, uh, Louise Erdrich, um, uh, one of the great American novelists, uh, a Native American woman who, who currently resides in the city of Minneapolis wrote uh, uh, an opinion, uh, uh, a review of a, of a work that we did in Athens, Greece using these weapons and um, cited how they were used against Native Americans um, at Standing Rock. And so uh, we wanted to take a weapon of terror that was designed to elicit silence through noise and reimagine it into an instrument of beauty that could then broadcast healing sounds and sort of in a public way and create a real scramble situation. Like this is supposed to be listened to in private, but now it's public. It's supposed to be healing, but it's coming through a weapon. It's, it's, a, it's, it's it in itself, well, is it healing people or is it anesthetizing people? We, we want it, we, in order for us to have a conversation, we have to get to a place to where we can see the comedy, we can laugh, but we, but we can also understand the incongruencies of our behaviors and the incongruencies of the systems that we're building in the world. And so um, the, the moving ASMR from the public to the private is very much in accordance with an indigenous worldview where we're not, we're going to take something that was meant to be designed to promote notions of the individual, going back to Jeffersonian um, philosophies of enlightenment, and break that thing, dismantle that thing, so that it becomes not about, um, not about, I think, therefore I am, Descartes types of Western philosophies, but we are therefore I am. What that means to that indigenous worldview is that we're to experience this collectively. Because as individuals, that's where we're, that's short-circuiting you know, our potential for human communication. We wanted, we wanted it to be a shared. We wanted to break it, dismantle it, hack it, reposition it, and reimagine it, not as a private experience, but as a shared experience. And I think that's what art's for. So you mentioned that uh, 2017 work, The Ears Between Worlds Are Always Speaking, uh, which was installed uh, in Athens for Documenta. Now, at that work, you also used these um, weaponized speakers, but the sounds they were broadcasting were things like songs and stories and um, material that is related to, I would say, ceremonies of, of greeting guests and listening. Um, 
and so there was that opposition there between weaponization and welcoming. Yeah. But it seems like what's happening in the point of final collapse is a lot more complex because oh, you're yeah. not only having the weaponization and healing, but also you're thinking about ASMR as something that is anesthetizing people as well as calming them. And so there's, there's a kind of doubling up of these, these contradictions right. and it's a lot kind of darker and I would maybe more yeah. ironic in that way. Yeah. Um, is that related to the, the change in sight or is there a bigger shift in, in post-commodities thinking about how to approach these tools? What kind of, how, how would you describe that, um, that kind of comparison between these two works? Yeah, these two works are radically different from one another. I think the I, the reason why these um, Al, why Alrad showed up in Greece and Documenta 14 and why they've shown up here is because we've been we've been, we're um, we're attracted to them. Um, we we are um, we are concerned about them. We. In Athens, Greece, I think context matters tremendously. I mean, when, in Athens, we did a piece called The Ears Between Worlds Are Always Speaking. And what we did was we took two of these um, alrads, like the ones that are up in the tower, similar to them, and we aimed them at uh, Aristotle's Lyceum. So this, was, this is a ruin in Athens, Greece, where Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, upon which, you know, arguably empiricism was, was born from, the Western scientific worldview, it's really kind of its birthplace in a way, even though I don't think it's part of Western Europe, but that's another question, that's an, another argument altogether, came from this site. And so we, put the weapons down upon it. And this was a diplomatic, a great diplomatic challenge, by the way, because Greece doesn't allow their ancient heritage sites to be used as works of art. So this took a lot of diplomacy to make this happen. But that particular situation there was very simple. We just wanted to flip the script on an instrument that we thought was terrible, or we perceived as terrible, into one that we could perceive as beautiful. And what it did was it, it projected a, a, a two-channel hyper-directional opera that started at sunup and ended a little bit before sundown. And the opera, the, the opera's libretto consisted of stories by immigrants and refugees throughout the world. And the reason why we chose Aristotle's Lyceum for, that, for those stories to be told is because Aristotle believed in a thing called peripatetic learning, where he believed that knowledge was in motion and therefore, that bodies also had to be in motion when knowledge was being transmitted. And that's a very basic description of peripatetic learning. So 
He never taught his students in this kind of scenario we're in right now. People went for walks to learn. He also was of the belief that people who engaged in these dialogues while walking represented scholars. They were like scholars to him. Anybody who walked and shared ideas was like a scholar to him. Well, at that time, at that point in time, we had a stable number of 68 million people migrating on Earth, the largest human migration in all of our history. That would mean, and perhaps, perhaps the assumption is that that would mean that we were looking at 68, I'm sorry, did I say 68,000? Because I meant to say 68 million. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Maria. Good to see you. Um, it, it would be a six, it would mean 68 million professors in the world today that we're not listening to. And so we situated the hyperdirectional sound on the pathway Aristotle walked because it caused people to walk the same path Aristotle would walk with his students in ancient Greece. And that was its context. Here, we're, de de we're dealing, and you know, the, 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 the border, the Macedonian border, you know, it's just a few hours away. So there was a lot of diplomacy that had to happen in order for that work to, to be made real in the world. But now what's happening here is we're dealing with our own citizenry experiencing life in the way that refugees experience life in the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And maybe that's the, the, the closest connection I can draw between the two works, aside from the fact that they share Alrads, but in this context, they're being used in an extremely complicated way, showing massive amounts of incongruity connected to technologies that are not living up to the promises we are being sold by the corporations who develop them. So this is a city, this is a city where, where, where many people believe the world's problems can be solved through smartphone apps. And what we're here to do is we're here to sense the situation. We're here not to see it, but we're here to see it, to taste it, to smell it, to listen to it, to touch it. And we're trying to figure out how to communicate it, how to market in a way the which we might more deeply embody it because we're we're kind of pro prosaic in a way, and it's happening. And so the Alrads are great for this particular, to tell this particular story, to 
What the LRADs do is they turn your body into a resonator. They don't operate the way normal speakers operate. It creates a sort of beam of sound that sort of projects outward. And then these hypersonic frequencies sort of rattle your body and you hear it from within, yet at the same time able to discern its directionality. It is a very unnatural and a very weird experience of sound. Now, um, what that means for us is that if you go out, for example, to Stockton between Chestnut and, and um, Francisco, it's a real sweet spot. You're, you're really in the line. Your body is physically embodying what it means to be a falling building through voices that are telling you it's going to be OK. And so our hope is that this can lead to conversations that are not what we're currently seeing in the city, which is a, we call it a matrix of, of accountability, but it's really a blame matrix, you know, of- What's the difference between accountability and blame? Well, um, it's re re rhetoric, yeah. rhetorical. Um, accountability is positive and blame is negative. But the matrix are all those who are in litigation right now over this. And for a long time, it was, it was not going anywhere while this building is falling. And so I got, you know, we got a lot of um, reviews here. They're in my lap, all of them. They're it's awesome. And, you know, there was a couple of reviews that are like, you know, this, this incongruent thing that you're doing is, is, is dark and you don't, don't appreciate it. It's cheap. It's, you're telling that to an American Indian group. Are you fucking kidding me? This is a city that's pimped out lands and pimping out lands on a daily basis that people that we love and care about hold very sacred in the world. And so, you know, the, the I'm kind of losing my train of thought because I got angry, but <laughs> the blame and accountability, the blame matrix, one of the things that's coming out in the reviews here is that, well, it's already been litigated. It was litigated this summer. And a lot of the responsibility is, fell on the lap of the developers, millennium developers. But there's still more litigation to come. And then people are saying, but it's going to be solved. This piece isn't going to last for that long. It, SFAI has committed to stewarding this work till the building falls. It's demoed or it's fixed. The thing is, is that if you look at any of the, the, the articles that have come out about fixing the building, 
It's like fantasy. So we might be able to litigate this thing. We might be able to get through it. But the engineering is entirely, it's a different thing altogether. It really seems like from where we're standing, not there, we haven't seen a viable solution. Also, for it, it to be fixed would mean for there to be more done to the land that oh, yeah. the land probably doesn't need. Or, oh, yeah. um, and so what, I mean, how does that figure into your conception of, of the, the work's hypothetical endpoint? Um, well, I, I mean, well, why did you say, not just say, it's going to keep playing until the building collapses, which would be... Yeah, or, because or, that, or that goes back to the, the, philosophy, the philosophy of accountability. It's um, a, a way of, of, of us thinking about how we're all implicated. We, we are all, to some degree, account, to be held accountable for this situation. And I'm talking about that person on the street. I'm not talking about that fucking tower. I'm talking about the person on the street. We, we, um, we have to have that thing sound off. Because we're not, I don't know if we're doing that enough. I don't think we're doing that enough. I don't, I don't, I don't see it. I haven't seen it yet. And I'm new here, so. I have a lot to learn. When you were talking about the LRADs, I was just wondering what it's like to acquire these things. I imagine you can't just go on Amazon and yeah. order, order one or a couple. So um, when we did our work in Greece, and then it was the same, well, we did, it, 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 it ended up differently here. But when we did the, the work in Greece, which you can imagine, it's really hard to export these. You know, another, I mean, it was, there was a lot to untangle in that situation internationally. But well, we purchased them on eBay. <laughs> and, and we also bought them from um, police, from the police. Um, the police uh, sold them on eBay? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was like they were surplus. And so um, they didn't know what to do with them. You know, they get federal dollars and they're supposed to militarize, which they're doing. I understand a tank showed up in Oakland like a couple of days ago. You know, it, it's the police are supposed to militarize. You know, we're 2020, it's crazy, right? You gotta get this police like, you know, we need to make sure they have tanks and bazookas, you know, so that people can't barbecue in the park. And, and so, so, you, you have like a situation where uh, those dollars don't get spent, you know, they, they lose it. I, and so police, police are arming themselves to the teeth. And then they have all these toys and then they don't know what some of them are for. And in this one police for, um, force that we bought one of the Alrads from, they were using it at the public pool as a PA system for music for the kids. Now, in this particular piece here, we bought them directly from the company. And we asked them for their demo, 
because uh, we needed to get them at the lowest possible rate because we had to make it fit within our budget and they helped us out. Um, so you and I were last in touch in 2017. Quiz uh, Commodity did a portfolio for Art in America that was related to your 2043 project. And yeah. the name of that comes from the year when um, people of color will make up the majority of the population in the United States based on demographic predictions. And in that project, you combine poetry and art criticism to speculate on what it would be like um, for there to be multiple ways of thinking and creating knowledge uh, that coexist with each other without having to speak to a kind of centralized discourse that is based on the logical structures of, of whiteness and colonialism. Um, and so I'm interested in how the point of final collapse is similarly oriented toward the future and there is a kind of utopian thinking uh, at its base um, that is sort of has faith in that this entity that causes harm or poses danger is going to be removed. Uh, and so I'm just, uh, I wanted to ask how post-commodity came to that orientation toward the future and yeah. what it means for you. So, um, wow. Um, so 2043 is uh, the year that the US Census has marked as um, a time when the America's demography is gonna shift um, the demographics is going, is going to bear a, a, a name called majority minority. And I love that because brown people, you know, people of color, we're, we're still going to get to be a minority. And I love that. And so um, we started to rethink the, the, the conversation of 2043, like we need to move away from that. We need to move away from the minority majority and we need to try to understand how to build a future majority. And so post-commodities discourse has been a, a centered around how do we make work and, and we're, we're, we're pushing this discourse very heavily in New York, and specifically with the Ford Foundation, working with the Ford Foundation to try to see if we can get some power behind it. And of course, many other entities. But the idea is that we as people of color we, we don't know how to talk to each other. You know, we, we, don't, we don't know how to forgive ourselves. We don't know how to forgive each other. We, we don't know how to acknowledge each other. We've been divided through these systems of capital. And so 2043 is an effort to encourage people of color to learn new rhetorical and linguistic technique for coming together and working together to build that future majority. It's really hard. It's really hard to do. We've been on working on this since 20, since 20, 
um, 17. It's not a very long time. It's our vocation in life, though. I think we'll die trying. But the, the thing is that um, when you think about the point of final collapse, it's about having compassion and empathy for everybody. I mean, people who occupy the building to people who are sleeping on the cold cement right outside at the base of the building. But at the end of the day, where we feel the greatest compassion and forms of empathy are for people who have been, have fallen victim to these, to the systems of capital that we're all suspended by. And so we're hoping that in some way the piece can, is, I'm glad there's been some laughter in the audience. I'm really glad for that and I really appreciate that and that means a lot. I think that means a lot in this world. We don't laugh enough. I have a really hard time getting my students to laugh. And, and, and so I'm hoping that, I mean, we, we're, we're here to sense the world. That's, that's what we're here to do. That's what we do. But it, it would be nice to, to that this was some sort of humble contribution to, you know, uh, in the sense that it is in some way inspiring for all people, all people to get into a dialogue with one another to see how we can reclaim the Bay Area. It needs reclamation, it needs redistribution, and it, and it needs to have a soul, it needs a heart. It needs to go visit the Wizard of Oz. It needs courage, it needs a heart. What was the other one? Brain. It needs a brain, <laughs> damn. Especially a brain. <laughs> that post commodity has a way to work into the classroom and, yeah. and work with um, students to develop those ideas. So when I came to um, the San Francisco Art Institute, um, um, my predecessors had a vision of art and technology that uh, I largely disagreed with. and. Um, so I, I've been rebuilding the program. But I, but I found that initially when I first showed up here that uh, students had a, a particular perspective um, and that that perspective um, was, um, like I couldn't draw the connection between what the medium itself demands of the artist and where artists were willing to go. Like artists, I found that a lot of my students were, didn't, um, they didn't want to get underneath the hood with it. Because technology is really deceiving. It's designed to create a level of user friendliness 
It's designed to make you think you're thinking differently. And so we might get really good at using software, but we'll never have any sovereignty if we ourselves can't develop it. We'll always be at the whim of those who are developing it. And those who are developing it are telling us that they're the true artists that we're not, that we're done, that they're the creative class now, we're not. We're just traditionalists. And so um, it's just been a lot of work to persuade my students to become digitally literate and to help them see the value in that. And that's coming from an American Indian perspective you know, I was an American Indian Studies student as a, as a doctoral student for well over five years. And the one thing that I learned from, from my Native American mentors was that sovereignty matters. Self-determination matters. We can't have it just by using software. We can't. Our behaviors are conditioned by it. We have to either know how to hack that software and reimagine it in the images of ourselves. We also have to know how to make it. And if we can't do that, whose art are we making? Photoshop's art? And so that's a, that's a very deep American Indian philosophical question that didn't does not come from any kind of naivety. It comes from over 500 years of cultural genocide and genocide of indigenous people in this entire hemisphere. And now we have to contend with this new wave of literacy, version 2.0. And I think the jury's out. People are disturbed. People are also addicted to dopamine, like me. <laughs> um, more laughter, good. Um, so in, in our, our January issue is about generative art and artificial intelligence, and it, it's a lot about how artists, um, you know, starting with early computer art in the 50s and 60s to artists working with machine learning now, um, are taking these technologies that are developed for use by the military, use for surveillance, um, and trying to figure out what else can be done with them. And oh, so yeah. it, it's, it's really great to hear you talking about how Post Commodity does that. And the way you used the word generative in the beginning was sort of um, tying together what you do with um, the technology and the code, but also opening up totally. perspectives. Totally, you nailed it. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Yes, because the idea is that a lot of what we do as a collective is that we position our site, ourselves within sites of conflict and controversy. And we try to work with the public to entertain the possibility of moving from conflict and controversy to curiosity. 
There's like four C's in there. I had written them in a manifesto, and we're try, we try to convert things, those four C's into this other C called um, 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 curiosity. And, and so, because it's when we're curious that we can engage in joint inquiry. And so, um, so when, when we think about generative, that's, that's, that's a definition for generative, is joint inquiry, as opposed to um, the, um, a zero-sum game of, of uh, debating and fighting one another, that we can get in and we can, and we can rival each other, but that we would, we would do that for the purposes of recovering and building knowledge. And, and, and that that would be the generative act, because we don't see the generative act in, in partisan politics to, today. And it seems like your orientation toward the future is also a part of that curiosity yeah. and thinking about totally. what, what is possible. Totally. We're going to play it. So if you go out to the courtyard, we're going to sound off the tower for four minutes so you can uh, listen to it. Cool. Thank you for joining. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 